Makers of Sport Podcasts, Episode 2, with Joe Bosak. Episode 2 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, from Lexington, Kentucky. I want to say thanks again to everyone that's been following the show on Twitter, at Makers of Sport, or listened to the show on SoundCloud, or subscribed on iTunes. That being said, I'd be very appreciative if you happen to enjoy the show, if you would go rate it and leave a review on iTunes. You can find it at makersofsport.com forward slash iTunes. Today on the podcast, our guest is someone that I've known for a few years. He's really one of the first people that unknowingly introduced me to this niche of sports design. I discovered his identity work back in 2005 when I was in college and ever since have been a huge fan and follower. He graduated from the Tyler School of Art at Temple University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design and has worked in-house at the NHL and FILA USA before starting his own design and branding firm in 1998. His client roster includes the likes of athletic team and consumer brands such as Nike, Wichita State University, Mississippi State University, the University of Houston, Xavier University, Iowa State University, and the Southeastern Conference, just to name a few. Most recently, he unveiled the athletic branding for Austin P University, which is a very successful athletic program in the Ohio Valley Conference. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the founder and creative director of Joe Bosack and Company, Joe himself. How you doing, man? Doing great, Adam. How you doing? Doing pretty well. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about your history working in sports branding and then also the founding of Joe Bosack and Co? Yeah, sure. You know, um, when, when I graduated from art school in 1994, it, it, working in sports seemed like um, uh, an impossibility to me. I didn't know that designers had careers working specifically in the in the sports industry. And I later found out that it's a, a very difficult industry to break into, especially as a designer. There's um, you know lots of lots of, uh, of difficulties in getting noticed and, and being attractive to, to some of those people that are hiring for those jobs. And, and frankly, I just got really, really lucky and um, I ended up meeting some people at an event in New York. Uh, that were involved in the National Hockey League, specifically David Haney, who was the director of creative services at the NHL at the time. And, you know, I ended up staying in touch with him and, and sending my resume and, and interviewing um, at the National Hockey League and, and ended up getting a job there. So, you know, like most athletes that enter the, the sports industry, they often start at the, at the bottom, right? You, you start in the minor leagues and work your way up. I was really, really lucky and really fortunate to be able to start at one of the four major sports leagues. So um, it really did boost my career and set me on a career path that you know, little did I know would really define the next 20 years of my life. So starting at the NHL, I was there for two and a half years. And then I moved on to um, art director at Fila Sports in one of their divisions. And I spent another two years there. And then in uh, 1998, at the wise old age of 25, I decided to, uh, to start my own business. And uh, that's really where the whole, uh, the whole thing started. Um, because of my experience at the NHL and my experience 
experience at Fila, I came out with uh, lots of great contacts and um, places to look for, uh, for opportunities. And uh, it really did pan out. I mean, after my first week, uh, I had my very first client, my very first on my own client, which was the East Coast Hockey League in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, the, the, the project, I still remember the project. It was to develop the identity for the Kelly Cup finals for the ECHL, a logo, interestingly enough, that they still use to this day. So it's been, uh, it's been durable, I guess. <laughs> Do you work on other identity projects or anything other than identity projects? Well, in large part, brand identity development is our core competency. So that is the vast majority of the work that we do. But from time to time, there are other projects that are around the activation of those identities. So collateral materials and and things like that, um, uh, activation launch plans, those sorts of things that we do um, a fair amount of, but still in large part, our business is solely focused on uh, brand identity development in the sports world. What's what's the typical day in the life of Joe Bosek like? Because I know that you yourself do more than just design. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a big proponent of work-life balance. I think it's really important especially in a creative career. I think that, you know, what you do between the hours of, you know, 5 p.m. and 8 a.m. are really just as important as what you do between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. I think that to have a work life that is creatively charged, I think you have to uh, get away from it from time to time and, uh, and allow yourself to sort of recharge, if you will. So I'm a huge proponent of, uh, of that. And because of that, I try to structure my days um, as much as possible around having, having a, a limited time in the office, that eight to five sort of scenario. But those typical days tend to be very different. You know, of course, there's times when you're on deadline or when certain things are just not working out or some days when things are working out and you're, you're creatively charged and you do want to spend more time in the studio and, and, uh, and get more done. So it really does, does uh, you know, depend upon the particular workload that we have at the time, but things do change. But in large part, I like to try to keep set hours that, uh, that allow me to, to recharge every single day. That's good to hear, man. Cause we, you know, a lot of, not just in the design industry, but just the sports industry in general. I know that sports information directors are some of the hardest working people doing this stuff, having to be at every game and also work the typical work day. So it's good to hear that that plays a role into your creative process. Speaking of creative process, can you talk a little bit about that as far as like sketching and, you know, how you sort of start your work? Yeah. You know, I approach the, every project essentially the same way with, uh, you know, blank pages in my sketchbook. And I think that, that drawing is, is such, is such an important exercise within the work that I do. Uh, I can't speak for all designers because I do know some designers that are very, very good at uh, jumping right onto the computer and fleshing out beautiful concepts uh, without ever putting pencil to paper. I'm not one of those guys. I think that for me, in the rare instance that I would just jump straight into uh, into the computer and start drawing, I tend to get focused on on a on a particular design or a particular concept. Sometimes when it, that particular concept isn't the best solution, so through doing thumbnails and through doing lots of sketching and and lots of concepting with pencil and paper, it allows me to flesh out ideas quicker. It allows me to discard those ideas that are not working. 
and then ultimately focus on the concepts that are, are feeling the best, that are getting the most traction, that are the best responses to the, the particular needs of the project. And then moving into the computer is, is, uh, is sort of the way that I like, to, uh, I like to approach it. That way, I don't get bogged down in directions that may not be uh, working. On that transition there, how close do you get them when you're in the sketchbook? Like the initial rough one's right, and then you, you move a little closer and a little closer. Like, how do you determine when you're ready to just jump? Now you're ready to take these that are a little more refined into Illustrator. I, I do refine my sketches. Like uh, I'll do, it's not uncommon for me to do, you know, 30 to 50 thumbnail sketches for any given project. And, you know, a lot of those are really, really rough. I mean, they are thumbnails. They're, they're the size of a quarter. You know, they're not, uh, they're not really big and, and detailed kind of marks. And then what I'll do is I'll try to isolate the, the half a dozen or the 10 or so that are really working the best. And then I refine them um, by using uh, vellum. And I'll basically just put a sheet of vellum over the top of them, start refining them, start um, cleaning them up. But even those sketches are still pretty rough. When I scan them in and start working over the top of them in the computer, uh, they uh, they still tend to be, you know, a little bit, um, you know, uh, undefined, if you will. But but I do think that 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 initial process still allows the idea to formulate, and that's really what the importance is to to the whole sketching sketching phase for me. But it's it's working out those ideas really quickly and not getting stuck on something that's you know not the best. Do you believe that being a good illustrator is um, vital to being good in sports branding? Oh, absolutely. I totally do. And the reason being is because you know, sports identity is, sports logos in general are driven off of you know, what, that, what the mascot is, what the nickname is of the, of the client. And in the sports world, you know, it's, uh, it's, th- there's lots of of animal imagery and those sorts of things that are associated with mascots. And because of that, you know, being able to define those things, being able to draw those things is, uh, is a real critical part of, um, of the project. You know, sure, th- there's lots of schools out there, lots of teams out there that have typographic, typography-based primary logos. There's not a lot of illustration skill that's necessarily required for something like that. But the vast majority of lions and tigers and bears require you to be competent in uh, being able to draw those things. So yeah, I think illustration's huge. Touching on that a little bit, have you ever had to design an identity for something that was maybe a little more abstract? Like we all know that Baylor Bears, we can sort of come up with a subjective you know, idea in our head. What does a bear look like, right? Uh, it's a basic elementary thing, but but something that that maybe doesn't have an animal or like a tornado or something like that. Have you ever had to do any work like that? And is it challenging? We've, I've done lots of things like that over my career. And, and I don't know if it's necessarily challenging as much as it is um, liberating for me personally. I mean, I can see for some designers how that would be a challenge, how to be able to define something intangible. But I see it as an opportunity to get really creative. You know, I think about like one of the first projects I ever worked on as a professional graphic designer was at the National Hockey League. It was the Colorado Avalanche identity, which was unveiled in 1995. And, you know, that was a, that's an intangible, you know, it's not, um, you know, it isn't that, that defined imagery. And because of that, there's lots of different ways to be able to take something like that. So the concepting phase for me was really refreshing. It was 
really a blank sheet of paper, really defining that thing, that intangible, um, in, in really, you know, very creative ways. So that was, uh, that was um, charging for me. And, you know, uh, subsequent projects that we've had that are like that, I find them to be equally liberating. It's, um, it, you can get really creative with those kinds of projects and really explore things that you really couldn't do with, uh, with projects where the mascot or the nickname is a little bit more defined. Most sports identity designers, obviously, like we discussed, tend to be really good illustrators. Um, how much does custom typography play a role in sports branding? Uh, do, and do you, do you typically follow traditional typeface designers in news? Like are, are people that work in sports branding type nerds, like traditional designers? Well, I, I don't know if I don't know if uh, I can only speak for myself. I don't know how uh, if there's other you know type nerds out there, but I'm I'm it's a big deal to me. I think that you know, one of our jobs is to develop imagery uh, around uh, the client's brand that is unique and ownable, and I think that typography plays a huge role in that. Uh, we always we always talk about you know commercially available fonts and custom fonts and things like that. And I think that that if the type is uh, truly unique and truly ownable, it contributes to the uniqueness of the brand. And I think that's part of what we deliver to our clients, something that is, um, that is different. So type does play a huge role in that. I, I do follow type designers. I think that I'm always looking for inspiration from that part of the creative world. And I think that it's, it's something that I've learned more and more um, about over the years and some of the nuances of, uh, of type design and what really makes uh, strong letter forms and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's a big part of, uh, of what we do. And, you know, the way that it gets applied in sports is, uh, is critical. You know, thinking about the way that it shows on uniforms and things like that. That's one way to carry that brand through to a lot of different components. Would you suggest that a team would need a custom typeface uh, in sports identity projects? And if so, how do you determine which should be custom typography versus what should be existing typefaces that might be used for, say, collateral or the publishing side? Yeah, I think that I think teams should have custom typography. I think it's an important aspect, like I said, of of the overall brand and, and of the presentation. But I do think that, you know, a secondary commercially available font is also critical, too. You know, there's going to be those applications where um, a display font or a headline font is going to be a little too complex for certain things. So having a, a secondary commercially available font as part of the overall identity plays a critical role for a lot of those collateral materials. Think about website and business cards and letterheads and um, schedule cards and posters and things like that. Those pieces that can be type heavy, I think to have a, a commercially available font associated with the brand is an important thing. So, so in those instances, are you developing an entire typeface or are you just designing the, you know, the, the, the name, the nickname? Yeah, we, we, we've done it both ways. I mean, we, over the years, we have done custom keyable fonts for our clients and I think that those are great projects when, when we do those, it really does contribute to the uniqueness of that, that final presentation, but we've done it both ways. You know, a lot of times th there's, there's a, a cost associated with developing custom keyable fonts. And sometimes that's prohibitive for some of our clients. So, um, what we would do in those situations is develop the, the custom type solutions for the name of the school and the nickname and those sorts of things, and then couple them with, uh, with a commercially available font. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, 
the Austin P project that we recently unveiled. And I think that's a pretty good example. For the, for the main impact type of that identity, both Austin P and the word governors, that's custom, unique, and ownable uh, a type treatment. But then there is a secondary font, a support font that, uh, that shows up in that identity that is, is for all of those collateral materials. The font is Gotham Bold, a Hoffer for a Jones font. And that, uh, that's something that they use in all of those subsequent communications. So it's an important sort of combination of those, of those two things. But whether or not we develop a custom keyable font for the client or uh, just a custom word marks and then a support font is really dependent upon the project and, and the client itself. So there, there's lots of variables that go into that. Right. I, I, I see uh, actually using Gotham proves that you you're you are a tight nerd. Right. It's, it's to introduce that into the sports world, I think, is is awesome. So you've actually used that before. Right. Uh, has Gotham was Gotham used on the SEC championship logos? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, actually, that the, the, the SEC has uses Gotham as their, you know, quote unquote, official font. So it shows up in a lot of different things. And um it's something that we have used in the uh, in last year's SEC football championship. We've used it in um, in a number of the things that we've done uh, done for the SEC. So we we do quite a bit with uh, with them um, around event identity and things like that. So that Gotham font does show up a lot, but it's a great. I mean, it's a great font. It's a great athletic font too. It's got a great yeah, it's bold, beautiful font. Oh, it's got a great bold characteristic to it and. Um, uh, very, very legible, especially in a, in a wide variety of sizes. So I, I, I love it. When, when I saw that that was part of the SEC's official uh, identity, I, I jumped all over it. Yeah, it's, it's hard to misuse that too, right? Like when you're handing off <laughs> the assets. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. yeah. So, so there's kind of this traditional method of um, having like a combination mark and then maybe a letter mark or tertiary logo. And then you've got like the symbol. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on where, you know, say Nike with Florida state, they, they're introducing some, some other visual elements that aren't necessarily traditional identity elements. So like the pattern or these things that, of, of introducing like a visual language that can be applied in multiple ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it all depends on how it, how it's done. Frankly, um, I think that any element that contributes to the uniqueness uh, of the brand, I think, is is a good thing. Depending upon, again, you know, how it ultimately uh, ultimately gets applied, if it plays the right role as a secondary component, as uh, something that doesn't compete with uh, with the primary identity, that primary brand identity. Um, and and more of a complementary uh, component to it, and I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. You know, we don't have a whole lot of experience in uh, in developing some of those things. Oftentimes, they happen with the the supplier or the brand that is uh, that's that's representing the school, like a Nike or an Adidas or an Under Armour. But I think if it's tastefully done and it and it it contributes to um, to the brand, then I think it's a a, a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I, I think um, a, a more traditional brand branding firm uh, out of England, I believe, uh, Wolf Olins, they did the London Olympics identity a few years back. And you remember there was a lot of crit- criticism over that. But one, one thing that really appealed to me was where 
um, you know, it was sort of this blocky, and I'll put a link in the show notes, but, but it was this blocky 2012 that was pink, right? Well, then as it scaled out, right, and as it was applied to these multiple mediums and physical spaces, you just started to notice this, like, visual language take place where even though it didn't say 2012 or didn't say the Olympics, when you saw that blocky pink shape, you associated that sort of subconsciously with the Olympics. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing that, that, you know, I'm I'm actually interested to see where that goes in the future, especially if you think about how much media nowadays, these things have to go on. I mean, obviously the logos have to be simplified because they need to be applied to a field, but now we're talking about digital and, you know, things that are moving and that kind of stuff. So. Oh yeah, totally. I I think, I think it's, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that London identity because I had the exact same reaction to it when I first saw it is, yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite get it. It felt pretty foreign. It didn't feel necessarily athletic. But when I did see it, uh, you know, unfold and and how it applied to you know lots of different things, it really did come together as a nice cohesive package. And uh, I had exactly the same reaction that uh, that you did. I thought it was at the end of the day, I, I had a much different opinion of that overall identity at the end of those Olympic games than I did at the uh, at the start of them. No question about it. Yeah, same here. And, you know, I think that's one of the things with uh, just identity in general, not just sports identity is, you know, when when a, when a client is seeing something on just like a, a white piece of, you know, white piece of paper, like here's here's your logo. It's 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 hard to to look at that in in, in an objective way where, you know, because you, you don't really see in how that's going to be applied. Right. Like, oh, here it is. Like, I'm just literally judging this by the picture. But then like, so that London Olympics identity, when I saw that applied, it really grew on me over time. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that's that's really uh, that's identity projects as a whole. I, I think they're very difficult to evaluate. Uh, in a vacuum. And I think that if you're, if you're doing your analysis and your evaluation of potential new mark and you do it uh, on a white piece of paper or on a white screen or something like that, it doesn't really give you a sense of how it's going to ultimately function. And to me, that's, that's really the difference between good identity and bad identity is in the application and how it, how it ultimately functions. So I think that, that being able to see things in context and evaluate them in context is, um, is really an, an important part of uh, of the design process and being able to you know, show people um, is uh, you know is really critical, right? And and I think that too also you know almost becomes the difference between someone that's that's been around doing this for a long time as a professional and or someone that's starting out. I mean, I too am guilty of starting out as just showing here's here's your three logos, you know, and now you know it's it's trying to really show how this thing's going to be applied because that helps to better sell the idea. Right. And what, cause you already see this stuff in your head. They can't see that. So reverting back to this whole uh, team identity thing. Um, what are some of the challenges and differences when designing an identity for a team like the Hershey bears versus an entire athletic program, like say the Houston Cougars, do you approach the projects the same way? Um, and are the deliverables similar yeah, no, it's actually completely different. It, you would think that, you know, athletic to athletic, you know, athletic identity to athletic identity, there would be, you know, it would be essentially the the same process. It's it's not at all the same process and deliverables ultimately end up being completely different because of it. You know, with a with a team identity like the Hershey Bears, for example, 
you're really only focusing on a singular sport. So you really know what the parameters are of that identity, especially when it's in the field of play. You know, you're, you, you know how it's going to look on a, on a jersey, and that's all you really have to think about is what that hockey sweater looks like. And, um, you know, when it comes to collegiate identity, it's completely different. The applications are far more broad. There's sometimes, you know, 15 to 20 sports that are under consideration. So you have to think about all of those things. And because of that, the identity itself has to be far more flexible in how it gets applied. So uh, thinking about uh, some of the things that you know, for, for us, for example, I look at some of our collegiate work, it tends to be a little bit more on the simpler side. It's a little bit cleaner. Um, it's a little bit more um, broad in its, in its application. It, it can apply to a lot of different things. And because of that, um, that alone, it makes, a, it makes for a very, very different project. Far more considerations in the collegiate space than there is in professional or minor league identity. Right, right. So what, what, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the current state of identity design? If we look at the 90s, um, it seemed that identities were a lot more complex and a lot more heavy in illustration and less graphic, as opposed to now we're starting to see more of a symbolic nature, a, a lot more simplified, um, a lot more graphic-like. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the current state of, of sports identity? You know, I think sports identity, like anything else, is sort of, uh, you know, style driven, fashion driven. It's it's driven by trends. It's driven by what's influencing it around it, technology and and those sorts of things. And, you know, because of that, just as styles change, so does the style of of identity change as well. You know, I, I definitely see a trend back to more simpler marks, cleaner marks, something that I've personally been a proponent of for many, many years. I, I think that sports identity is better when it's simpler and when it's cleaner. And, you know, those marks that were happening in the mid to late 90s, I mean, I was part of that too. You know, we were all doing that sort of thing back then, but that was, you know, that was what the industry was demanding. So we were sort of giving it what it was asking for. But I'm, I'm actually thrilled to see things come back around to more of a simpler identity, more of a classic identity, more designed than, um, than some of those other marks. You know, there's, there's something that is, there, it's more of a challenge, I would say. I would certainly say that. To develop something uh, simpler is, is harder than it is to you know, tell the whole story immediately within a, within a logo. So there, in a lot of ways, it's made my job more difficult. but I prefer that. I think you have to be a little bit more, you know, it, it sort of forces you to be a little bit more, um, more creative. And I think that's a, that's a really, really good thing within sports identity to get more creative and, and do things that are more visually interesting with less. That's always been a hallmark of mine too. You know, one of the things that stylistically I shoot for is sort of that maximum definition with the minimum amount of line. You know, I don't want to have a whole lot of information in a logo. I want it to be um, a simpler, quicker read, but still have some depth and definition within it. And being able to do that within the style is, um, it can sometimes, you know, be challenging. That's great, man. I really appreciate that. I'm a big fan of the way that, that it's going with this, this graphic, uh, graphic look. You are familiar with, uh, Dieter Rams, the industrial designer that designed many, many things. Braun, he was one of the designers from Braun. He has sort of these 10 principles for design. And I believe one of them was, um, 
it had something to do with removing, you know, like the best, the best design is the least amount of design. And I sort of, uh, interpret that to be, you know, not necessarily that everyone can do it, but it, it takes a, a really good designer to be able to remove things and keep removing to make something as simple as can be. And I love to see that sports is starting to go in that direction. Yeah. You know, I, I, I totally agree. And I, but I also think that there's, there's a, a potential to go too far with that too. You know, I, I've seen some things happen recently, especially in the collegiate space where you know, you've, you've boiled out the flavor of the, of the identity and the flavor of the brand and really gotten down to some things that are just frankly too simple. Uh, so I think about like the, the college of Charleston unveiled an identity not that long ago. And, and in my opinion, it, it's sort of void of any personality. It's just completely, uh, it's just too simple. It's just basic letter form. And so I think that there's, you know, finding that sweet spot is, um, is the challenge with projects like these, not, uh, you know, not taking it too far where you boil out all of the, the personality. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the, the process in the collegiate space is driven by lots of different stakeholders. And, you know, there's, there's a tendency among designers to try to please everybody. And, you know, that, that becomes, that becomes a real challenge. You know, I always use the analogy of like Baskin Robbins, right? If you, you take 20 people to Baskin Robbins, not everybody is going to agree on Tutti Frutti, you know, even though Tutti Frutti might be the best possible uh, flavor for that particular brand. But, you know, one thing that everybody can agree on is vanilla. And that's really where you don't want to end up with a project like this, especially when there's lots of stakeholders involved, is to boil this thing down to something that's just so void of personality. And I think that um, with, with simpler logos comes the potential to do that. So again, finding that sweet spot is, the, uh, is sort of my challenge on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, I think there's a fine line between you know, a, a professional doing something that is simple or, or achieving something that really comes across as amateur and, and just anybody is thinking, oh, well, I could have done that. Why did they spend X amount of dollars on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hear that a lot, right? Yeah. So, so kind of staying a little bit in this, in this area, what are your thoughts on consumer brands, uh, now approaching identity design projects for teams? Um, I mean, and, and have the, the brands become bigger than the team. Like oh, totally. an example would be Nike's graphic identity group doing design work for colleges. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, I think the brands have become bigger than the teams, um, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the sort of the, the end use of these things, the, the, the product, the apparel. Uh, you know, a lot of times, especially in the collegiate space, people's first interaction with uh, new identity or new brand identity is through retail. You know, people see it on a T-shirt or see it on a cap or something like that. And, you know, back when I started in this industry in the early 90s, it was, you know, it was all about the, the team. It was all about the, the team identity. So you'd say something like, hey, check out my new Flyers t-shirt. It's, you know, made by Reebok or something like that. And, and now things have really flipped. It's more about the brands. It's check out my, you know, my Nike t-shirt. It's got a Flyers logo on it. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of different in that regard. And the brands, of course, are getting far more involved in, um, especially in the collegiate space, in forming what these schools ultimately look like down to, as you mentioned, um, Nike's graphic identity group really redefining 
uh, not only what these teams look like on the field of play, but what they look like beyond there and divine and redes- redesigning their identity um, to have that sort of Nike, uh, Nike aesthetic. You know, we've all heard these stories about, you know, player, uh, you know, uh, signing kids out of high school and, and scholarships and stuff like that. And, and having that be a uh, uh, sort of, uh, deciding factor on where they go, whether it's a Nike school or an Adidas school or an Under Armour school. And um, it's, gotten, uh, it's gotten more and more important about uh, the brands have gotten more and more important in the collegiate space. Yeah. You know, I actually remember reading an article about a, a kid. Um, I don't remember who it was, but it was a few years back and it was a basketball player, high profile basketball player. And, and he decided not to go to Baylor because of the brand that they were wearing, right? Which I think is, is crazy. <laughs> it's craziness that that, that that plays such a role now. Well, there you go. I mean, there's the power of it. You know, there's, and there's, there's dozens of stories like that, that, um, you know, that, that, that can be a defining factor for an athletic program, for a team, you know, to sort of get that, recruit that high profile player. And if, if that player is making decisions based upon things as, inconsequential as what the what the team wears on field it's it just goes to show you the power the power that the brands have you know i think it's i think it, you know and and i guess the bigger question is is that necessarily a good thing and you know i i, I don't think so you know i think that that the, a lot of schools especially those that are highly influenced by some of the brands are losing their identity because of it you know there's there's they're they're becoming too far afield from who they really are, and uh, I think there's there's going to be some there's potentially some backlash to that, and I, we haven't seen what it is yet. I don't know what it is yet, but I don't. I think over the next the course of the next you know five or six years or so, we'll probably see that play out. Yeah, I, you know, even fr- from personal experience, I personally am being, you know, in Lexington, am a University of Kentucky fan, and I can remember the switch between brands between like Converse back in the '90s, and then when we when we moved to Nike, and how things literally they just they felt different, and and I think that's an interesting thing psychologically, the way that brands play a role into us as consumers and fans, you know, kind of staying on that a little bit. Since the brand of sports is so different than, than any other industry, especially in the collegiate space, um, I've heard you mention the tribal connection. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and the brand loyalty that drives it? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the challenges. You know what? I, I don't know. Challenges probably isn't the right word. I think it's one of the interesting things. And for me, exciting things about working um, on sports identity is that there, there's an irrational brand loyalty associated with sports teams. It's, it's, and you're right. I have referred to it before as tribal. It's, it's sort of a us versus them, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys kind of mentality. And that, that drives loyalty like, like you've never seen before. It's irrational, really irrational brand loyalty, um, where you know people people will defend their teams with uh, with with violence in some cases. My gosh, I remember the old seven hundred level in Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, where you know fights breaking out up there was uh, was a regular regular occurrence, and um, over things like you know guys wearing jerseys or, or paraphernalia, t shirts, and stuff like that from from the opposing team. So. It's, it's a brand loyalty that is, it's, 
beyond belief. And it's even more amplified in the collegiate space because of that power of alma mater. You know, this is this is not just a school. This is your school and you are, you know, physically a part of it. So it's um, it's an interesting world to uh, to to be creative in. It's an interesting world to design within because you have to take all of those things into uh, into consideration. You know, one of the things that that you know, sports fans are are adverse to change. You know, they don't like to see things change, and the work that we do is is a, a change at the most dramatic of levels. It's it's really changing um, everything about you know uh, uh, what that team looks like or what that school looks like. So that uh, that can become um, you know interesting from time to time. Yeah, I think that's definitely interesting. There's a there's a book actually that I read called Rammer Jammer Yellowhammer, which is the University of Alabama's cheer, but it's written by a guy named Warren St. John. And again, I'll put a link in the show notes, but he talks about this psychology of sports and how, you know, how crazy it is that you're you're, you know, we're talking about this tribe here where your tribe does something positive and it's you're like hugging strangers, you know? Yeah. It's like oh, this yeah. weird thing. And, and I think sports, you know, has, especially with what we do, it's uh, everything just seems to be amplified, right? Like consumer brands. Yeah. There's a little bit of, of, you know, negativity, maybe when a brand changes its packaging or something like that. But, but with sports, it's like the stakeholders in this thing just seem, seem insane. So kind of staying on that, that level. Uh, with social media influences and everyone blogging and tweeting nowadays, do fans and alumni have a bigger stake in team brands than they used to? Absolutely. I think they do. I think that it's, it's, it's much easier uh, with Twitter and with Facebook and with, um, you know, all of the social media that's out there to get vocal, you know, it's much easier for alumni and fans to, to, to really interact uh, directly with um, with their their schools uh, and, and get vocal about and express their opinions about certain things. Brand identity is definitely one of them. Uh, when a school does change its identity, it's not uncommon for there to be you know very long Facebook threads about you know people's opinions about it. And uh, oh yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a different world now where where uh, fans alumni, uh, people associated with a school or a team can get a lot more um, involved in, in some of the things that happen like that. Yeah, this, is, this industry, probably more so than any, when a team changes its identity, uh, uh, you know, somebody's tattoo no longer That's <laughs> is right. up to date. Right? That's right. We're not seeing people tattoo Tropicana on their leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, but you, you know, think about sports logos. My God, there's there, you know, they get tattooed on people's bodies every single day, you know? Right. Right. So, so with, uh, recently, uh, maybe a year or so ago, the university of California changed its logo. It was the, just the general university logo, the corporate logo, but there was a petition that got raised by fans or I'm sorry, not fans, but alumni and current students to change it back because they didn't like it. So that being said, do you ever receive hate mail from, from people in rebranding teams? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, all the time, all the time. The hate mail that I get, Adam, is majestic. I mean, it is it's unbelievable um, how, how people can be, um, you know, to, that so motivated, so motivated to send the designer 
you know, a, a note, an email or a letter or something like that, telling them how bad the work is that they've done. And it's, um, again, but it goes back to that. It goes back to that tribal brand loyalty. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's personal, you know, it's personal to people. And, and that, you know, that, that fuels, that fuels a lot of the hate mail that I get. So I understand it. I mean, I get it. I totally understand where it's coming from. But one of the things that you know we talked about earlier where you know we were saying how you can't sort of show the work on a blank white piece of paper and understand it um, that a lot of times that's how fans see it they really see it as black and white they see it as that that piece of artwork that they can you know hang up on their wall they don't see how it applies in application and how it reaches out to all of those other things and you know w- when you don't see all of that and again going back to our discussion about the olympics logo in london you know when you don't see that your reaction to the logo itself can be you know, very different than your reaction to the overall presentation. So I understand that. I mean, I understand how, how fans can, can react to that, but a lot of times, um, even, even with some of the, you know, worst scenarios where people really get, um, you know, up in arms about new logos and things like that, those sentiments fade relatively quickly. And I think that through time and context and and branding is really all about time and context, that through time and context, people get comfortable. They start to see the identity as it unfolds in a lot of different ways and, uh, and see it in application and people come become, you know, far more comfortable, uh, far more comfortable with it. Staying on this conversation, how important is it to really push that you are approaching this, these, these redesigns objectively versus subjectively to clients and the committees. And it's very easy for people to make a subjective choice, right? Like I can visually look at this thing and determine in my head if I like this color, if I like this design or whatever, but I may not be able to tell you why I don't like it. Right. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that's, but, but you know what though? I mean, that's how we react to a lot of things as, as human beings, you know, our, our, our initial reaction um, can be very, very different than uh, our perception of something after we've lived with it for a while. So I just think that's sort of human nature, you know, to to sort of react to it. But I think that that when we approach these projects, you have to approach them with a with a, a, you know a sound process that helps navigate a lot of those waters and really know that you know that through through initial research and initial conversations and you know uh, initial development really know that what you're doing is the is the right thing um, sometimes the the right thing is the hard thing and uh, that's often the case in projects like this so um, knowing that you've done the right thing staying the course and and sort of uh, uh, dodging some of those uh, negative re- initial reactions that are inevitable um, is is ultimately the way to go. You know, you, you mentioned that that University of California system identity where that came out and there was negative reaction and they ended up pulling it. I think that's absolutely the wrong way to go. If you have sound process behind your th- your sound process that is that is uh, navigating your your thinking on these projects, and you believe that it's the right thing to do, uh, I think to stay the course is um, is the way to go. I mean, you know, we've had projects in the past where uh, clients have said, oh, you know, this, the identity is getting some initial negative reaction. What should we do? And, you know, my response is always, 
stay the course. This is the right thing to do. We have had, um, you know, we have vetted this process. We have uh, talked to all the right people and we're all on the same page. It is the right thing to do. And again, through time and context, people become used to things and, and, and accept, accept things over time. And if it is the right thing to do, then you, you can be comfortable in, uh, in knowing that as you sort of navigate those waters. Right. If you keep pushing it and be consistent about it, it will eventually grow on people. We mentioned it earlier, the London Olympics identity, you know? Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, if, if it's, if it's the right thing to do, then, then it's, then it's the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So we're coming off the final four here. Um, and my beloved Kentucky Wildcats <laughs> lost in the championship. Yeah. My condolences. Um, well, I'm, yeah, recovering nicely though. We uh we got some some news of some some of the freshmen coming back, so that's that's positive. Um, what is the Bosac bracket that I see oh, you posting on yeah. Facebook and Twitter about during the Final Four? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 just a way for us to have a little bit of fun around what I consider to be the most exciting time of the year in the sports world. You know, March Madness and the the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is is in my opinion, the, the greatest sports event of the year. So, um, it's always a lot of fun and we try to have some fun around it. And what we do is we take the field of 64 as they are in, uh, you know, selection Sunday, as they come out in selection Sunday. And then we, uh, we build our bracket exactly the way as the bracket was initially built, but then we make decisions on who has the stronger brand. And, you know, a lot of times our final four or, you know, our elite eight are very different than who's, uh, who's still in the actual tournament, but we pair them, you know, brand to brand and we decide which one is the strongest and, we give some really good, uh, you know, insight into sometimes good, sometimes silly uh, insight into uh, um, into why we think that, and uh, and then we end up with a winner. That's that's awesome. It's a lot of fun. So, where can listeners find out more about you and see your work, uh, and you know, follow you on Twitter? Or- yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there's if you sort of you know shake the tree a little bit, and I, my name my name falls out, but um, a couple of places specifically, certainly via our website joebosack.com. That's J O E B O S A C K dot com. You can find me on Dribble. I have lots of stuff there on Dribble. Some things that are. Um, some of the work that we've done that's public, some of the work that we've done that didn't quite make the cut, lots of cutting room floor stuff there on Dribble. a little bit about our process too. Um, you can find me over there on Twitter at jbosack and, um, and Facebook as well. You can you know, do, the, do the search on Facebook and, and you'll find me. Awesome, man. Joe, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, just in, in this week in uh, sports creative news, uh, future guest Todd Radom was recently on ESPN Baseball Tonight's podcast with Buster Olney on Tuesday, I believe. He was discussing baseball uniform and identity history. Uh, he's a huge student of, of baseball history, especially the graphic side of it. So that's a really good listen. I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, also, Nike's graphic identity group, who we discussed earlier, has had a really busy spring unveiling a lot of athletic brand identities for the likes of Illinois, Florida State, um, Arkansas, and many more. Uh, I'll post a couple of those links in the show notes. I think that I've tweeted them a couple of times. Our next guest is going to be Jason Fearman. He was a former director of publications at LSU Athletics. He's currently at an advertising and marketing company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
uh, called Mesh. Um, his work and leadership in the LSU athletic department really helped to put their creative team on the map in the world of sports design and creativity. I believe he actually also started their popular at LSU publications Twitter feed. So that'll be an, an interesting view from the inside of, of a prominent college athletic program. Uh, I appreciate everybody for listening. And if you could, please tweet, retweet, share this podcast with anybody that you might think is interested. You can follow the show at Makers of Sport on Twitter, makersofsport.com. The website is very, very close, launching really soon. And uh, you can also listen on soundcloud.com slash makers of sport or subscribe on iTunes. Me personally, you can follow me at T Adam Martin. Big thanks again to Joe Bosack, and until next time, I appreciate it. <laughs>